0: you all tuned into the news this morning, but I did, and I sort of wished at times that I hadn't. Um, When I tune into the news these days, there was a, you know, there was a fragile peace sort of just starting to establish itself in the Middle East, and then yesterday and today there were two suicide bombings um, of Israelis. Uh, Sharon returned from Washington from peace talks, vowing retribution, and then I also heard there was a suicide bombing in Pakistan uh, today, too. And, of course, it also brings up for us, for me, um, the events of last September and what the repercussions of all of that are going to be. I read something in the news the other day that really shocked me and was kind of a wake-up call. Warren Buffett is, uh, I think, the second richest man in the United States. He's mostly an investor, but his core holdings are insurance companies. So he got very... Um, interested, obviously, in the ramifications of September 11th and how to um, look at insurance in a new light these days because his company said something like $3.5 billion in charges relating to the events of September. And he's also a pretty smart guy. (laughs) And his comment was, after looking at this whole situation, um, he came out and said the other day, you know, a, a nuclear attack on the United States is a certainty. He said this is not just something that might happen. He said it's virtually certain that this will happen. Because with the proliferation of um, the technology of how to make nuclear bombs and the increasing anger directed at the United States and the rest of the world, he said this is not a question of, of if, it's only a question of when. And it could be within the next 10 years, it could be within the next 50 years. They said most likely it would be New York or Washington. Wow. You know, I don't know about you, but I'd sort of settled back in since September 11th to feeling more comfortable and um, like maybe we were over the worst of it. And then someone as smart and obviously uh, wary of the risks as Warren Buffett says something like that, and we have to think again. So it's kind of a wake up call that um, the world is a pre- an unpredictable place. It's a place that's fraught with insecurity for our bodies and minds and hearts. The possibility of loss is huge um, for all of us. And the, you know, the events of last September woke that up as well. And then I started to think, I think that you can take this kind of understanding about the precarious situation that we're all in, in one of two directions. You can get really depressed about it. And there's a lot of sadness that accompanies this. And you can just spiral down in that weight of depression and despair. Or, I think there's also the possibility to take that information and use it to actually awaken our spiritual life. To uh, crystallize a sense of urgency and caring and compassion, and to use it to deepen our spiritual qualities. So I wanted to kind of toss out for your reflection the question, what is it that sends some of us in one direction, just kind of being bowed down in despair at the situation, and that allows other people actually to grow from that kind of insight, that kind of awakening? What makes the difference? In your, in your opinion. So you look around yourself and your friends and you probably can see people who are in their life going in two different directions with all this news and these changes. What's the capacity or what is it that lets people respond differently, either to grow and open or to basically close down further? I think then all grief and trauma that lay somewhat unconscious hmm And if they haven't worked through the past palette, it becomes very difficult to do objective and so a carryover from the past that hasn't been examined or, or open to gets re stimulated. Joe?
1: Well, I think the people that I see who are able to have that equanimity the in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's it's the balance but a, that the people that I see that are holding it in a way that I really, um, I think is really, really skillful, and certainly I'm not speaking for myself, but um, that they they live their life that way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like they walk that path, mm-hmm. and so when it comes, if they have the balance mm-hmm. to to be with the pain and to also hold it in some way, and it's really mm-hmm. a magnificent thing to see, mm-hmm. uh, but I think this practice is, is really, the, for me, that mm-hmm. path. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm taking baby steps on that path, but when you see people that have, have practiced for a long time, I think they do mm-hmm.
0: have a good. Thank you. So Joe's comment was that it really has to do with the amount of kind of preparation that people have put in in their lives to finding that kind of balance through their practice so far. Lynn?
1: In a word, I would say it's the relationship to change. Mm-hmm. That, uh, mm-hmm. that when one spiral to sort of a reluctant. Mhm. And hold on to the and the person who goes forward is often the person who, who who is willing to take that risk to go forward. Doesn't know what's going to happen, but, mm-hmm. but is willing to leave the comfort. Mhm.
0: Thank you. So the relationship to change, the willingness to let go, the ability to be flexible and adapt. Because of that, yes. Ah, huh, mm-hmm. lovely. Mm-hmm. Coming from a belief that we are a part of something much bigger. Nice. Comments on this side? Yes. So
1: the last one is the sense of connection to all beings, to nature, the
0: rest,
1: to people. Uh-huh.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Connection to nature, to pets, to, again, uh, the bigger picture of life. Yes? Um, I would say faith in mankind. Uh uh Faith in people, faith in humankind. Mm -hmm, Thanks. One more question, or comment, please. the skill of listening and this act mm-hmm. 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 listening interpersonally, listening um, globally and I also think it ties back into the first comment mm-hmm. listening to the pain within our own bodies, this, the stored trauma or unresolved grief. It's meditation really can be all described as the art of listening inwardly and outwardly. So that's lovely. Thank you. Okay. Um, I appreciate all those comments. I think there's a lot of wisdom in every single one of them and it really helps bring the focus to what I wanted to talk about. My own reflection, I came to a kind of similar place. I felt that um, it kind of came down to whether one was able to meet the events of the moment with a balanced mind that also had compassion and understanding. And it it really reflects all the different comments. And that kind of ability comes often out of having practiced it. It's difficult to bring it in on September 11th if we haven't discovered how to find it before then. But I resonate with everything that everyone said. Sometimes in meditation it seems like we give a lot of different instructions. You know, I mean this morning I probably gave five instructions and that was short. I could have, you know, I mean I could probably give a hundred different meditation instructions. There's sounds, there's space, there's body, there's thoughts, emotions, get particular about body sensations, is it just the breath, get precise about the in-breath and the out-breath, the quality of sweeping the attention through the body, They're able to meditate on no object, the list goes on and on. This technology's been refined for 2,500 years, so there are lots of techniques. But I think that it all comes down to one basic instruction, which is, get as good an approximation as you can on what the awakened state of mind is, and put yourself there. So I think what the Buddha was trying to convey in all his words and all his teachings was to share with us what he had discovered. And the discovery is in one way fairly simple. It's a way of looking at the world, it's a way of experiencing the world that is awake and peaceful. These are two simple qualities of the awakened state, awake and peaceful. And if we can be in that place, different aspects just shine out spontaneously. The doors are open for all the beautiful qualities of heart and mind to shine out. We don't have to call them forth. They're there when we're in that kind of awakened place. So our re- really our job as meditators is to find out for ourselves what that awakened place feels like, as best we can. This is a gradual path, so we're not Buddhas yet. We don't know how the Buddha saw the world. He saw the world you know, in a much clearer way than, than you or I do. But to the extent that we can kind of intuit where he was at, can we put ourselves there, moment after moment. In our meditation, first of all, that's kind of our training ground. Suzuki Roshi said that meditation is like learning to bake bread. You just keep putting it in the oven, you mix a dough and you put it in the oven, again and again and again, until you find out what makes a perfect loaf of bread. This is what we're doing in meditation. We're just trying, moment after moment, to find that awake, place in us. And there are many, many different words to describe it. Actually, at the end of the last um, retreat that we were doing, I guess it was the February retreat up the hill here, someone in the the group of meditators asked the teachers, would you all sum up the essence of this state that um, we're looking for, that we're aspiring toward? And we all had our own takes on it. Um, Sylvia's was something like, uh, the mind is clear and the heart is open. That was her summary. My summary was, an empty awareness pervaded by loving kindness. And different people had other kind of variations on the theme. But you can kind of get the flavor. There's this one kind of flavor of awakeness. And within it, many beautiful qualities can come out. And that's why I wanted to check in. When you touch this place of being awake and settled, what do you find? And so just to refresh, some of the qualities people mentioned were peaceful, pleasant, relaxed, spacious, uh, merging or boundaries between self and other going away, heightened senses, contentment, and a sense of wholeness through the body. These actually map um, rather nicely onto a set that the Buddha talked about. The Buddha had different ways of describing this awakened state. One concept does not capture it. It's a felt sense. It's a, non, it's a non-verbal thing. So one concept doesn't capture it. And so it gets described from different angles. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about it being like a diamond. And you twirl the diamond one way, you see different facets. You twirl it another way, you see other facets. So we need to get familiar with all the facets of this diamond that is our awakened nature. So one of my favorite groupings of these qualities is what the Buddha called the five spiritual faculties. And they are basically five aspects of this diamond. And they are uh, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And just to get a little of the sense of how those play into your comments this morning, uh, the faith part was echoed in a couple of comments of a belief in something bigger, a connection beyond ourselves, a faith in humankind. Um, The energy part, uh, Joe mentioned in this dedication to doing the work over years and years of our lives so that our practice builds up this strength of mind. Uh, Many people commented on the uh, mindfulness aspect, the comment that the senses are heightened and that the awareness is in touch with every aspect of our experience. Concentration, the sense of stillness that was mentioned with peace, relaxation, and also the sense of wholeness. Someone mentioned feeling that wholeness through the body. It's a sign that the... uh, Another word for concentration is unification of mind. That's all coming together. And the wisdom... Uh, Lynn mentioned the seeing of change and impermanence. Um, Understanding the uh, non-separation between ourselves and the outside that was pointed to with the merging comment, the comment on connection to something greater, all facets of the wisdom aspect. So I want to talk about each of these five qualities in a little more detail, Um, but I hope you will also keep in mind that you have kind of already been touching on them all, so this is not foreign territory for you, but we're just kind of drawing out these different aspects of the state that you're already familiar with. What, what's really in there? I think faith is really important. The Buddha put it at the beginning. You know these five qualities uh, he understood both sequentially and circularly, so that in, in his view, faith leads to wisdom, wisdom. Oh, sorry. Faith leads to energy, energy leads to mindfulness, leads to concentration, leads to wisdom. And we'll talk about that aspect. They also work sequentially. As we get more wisdom, faith deepens. That deepens our commitment, or energy, and so on. So they're understood in both senses. So faith is really a beginning point in Buddhism. And you all had to have some faith in order to sit down and try meditation for the first time. Somebody told you this was good stuff. Or you read a book that said this was good stuff and you had enough faith to try it. I was in an interview, um, I was on a retreat a week ago in Colorado, and in one of the interviews, someone came up and said, um, I have a really important question and I'm not going to be able to keep from crying when I ask you. He said, I look around and the world is such a mess. What can one have faith in? And then she did start crying. What can I have faith in? And again, this kind of ties back to listening to the daily news every day. If we don't have some kind of greater faith, it's really depressing. It's depressing. What can we put our faith in? Just one comment I want to make about that keeping faith in, you know, in kind of in touch with the world. Sometimes I think we all get overburdened by the sense of what's happening in the world. You can look at the destruction of the earth, the, you know, the death and poverty and starvation, the wars that are going on, um, torture, which is a, a proper instrument of state policy uh, many places in the world, uh, the oppression of women and uh, the neglect of children, I mean, the list is endless. And sometimes in looking at all that, we can get really a sense of it being too much to hold. One of my teachers, who's an activist, said something I thought was kind of wise. He said, when there's that sense that it's too much to handle, narrow your focus of seeing. Don't send your imagination and your thoughts out that far. Because it's really important that we maintain our own inner balance. You know, I'd say, especially in doing work of, of an activist nature, if you're really looking to change the world and you care a lot about it, One of the greatest things I think we can bring to the world is our own sanity, our own balance. You know, and I often wonder, does the world need more anger? Does it need more frustration? Does it need more blame? Does it need more name calling? I'm not sure. But I know that it needs our love, our kindness, our own inner balance. And if, in an activist role, that can start to come through, that's a, that's a beautiful way to change the dialogue. Dalai Lama is a great example of that, working with the Chinese government. This is from a young Tibetan Lama. Actually, he's, he's living in Ladakh, but he's a Tibetan... he's a practitioner of Vajrayana Buddhism, so, or Tibetan Buddhism, as it's known. And he was talking about his own situation He's grown up since, um, he was born outside of Tibet and grown up um, since the devastation happened. He said, I was given a Western education for which I am grateful in many ways, but I lost something. I lost the peace of mind that I might have had in another generation. Everyone in our generation lives in a fragmented, complex, disturbing time in which it is hard to keep one's spiritual balance hard to find the time to build that balance in the first place. I feel increasingly that I must go into retreat more, must meditate more, must discipline myself more. Otherwise, I shall be of no use to my people. This is in
1: Ladakh.
0: It's too busy in Ladakh. It's too crazy in (laughs) Ladakh. So, what does that say about North America in the 21st century? How much time do we need? How much balance do we have to work to find? This quality of faith in uh, Buddhism is a translation of the Pali term sadha. Uh, Pali is the ancient Indian language that the teachings came down in. Sadha literally means, the etymology is to place one's heart upon. I think this is a nice reflection because in Buddhism faith isn't about belief, it's not about I hold this set of principles to be true, this is the only truth, and everybody else is crazy, so I'm ready to fight with you. It's not particularly an intellectual thing. It's more a heart sense of um, trust, or you could say confidence. So another interesting reflection is, where do we put our trust or confidence? Because we all put it somewhere. It's interesting, if you look around the world, everybody has their own philosophy of life. Everybody's a philosopher. Everybody puts their trust in something, believes in something. Where is ours? And is it in a place that can hold it effectively? If we didn't have faith, if we didn't have that kind of trust, we'd be in a panic right now. So there's something that we all have placed our hearts upon. One of the things the Buddha said is, it's wise to place your heart on something that's beyond change. Because the things that are subject to change, when they do change, your faith can crumple. So before he started his practice, he was 29 years old, and he said, I saw that I was subject to aging, and I saw the pain in what is subject to aging. He said, seeing that, I gave up the vanity of youth. I saw that I was subject to illness. I saw the pain in what is subject to illness. And seeing that, I gave up the vanity of health. I saw that I was subject to death. I saw the pain in what is subject to death. And seeing that, I gave up the vanity of life. This is pretty amazing insight from somebody who's 29 years old. I think most of us, when we're young, tend to put our faith in our youth, in our health, and in life. But sooner or later, all those things will be taken away from us. And then what do we have to put our faith in when that happens? Fred Wapipa is a beautiful Native American teacher who teaches at Spirit Rock from time to time. And we built a sweat lodge just over the creek over there. Uh, for Fred to use when he comes and he usually leads sweats as part of his teaching here. So one time, it's the first time I did a sweat with him, the stones were brought in and he had just sealed the flap and he was starting to talk about uh, the philosophy of the sweat, how to hold it. One of the first things he said to us was, you know, in our Indian language, we don't have any word for hope. There's no word for hope. That's because we know that everything's all right. I thought that was an amazing expression for somebody whose whole culture had been uh, mostly destroyed over the last 150 years. We know everything's all right. That's that quality of real faith, the heartfelt faith, despite all the change, despite the suffering that goes on in the world. Somehow the sense that everything's all right. That was beautiful. In every spiritual tradition, there is, a real one, there is some pointing to this perfection of things. Even in the midst of imperfection. So the way Suzuki Roshi put it, the great Zen teacher, he said the world is perfect and there's a lot of room for improvement.
1: <laughs>
0: but can we see both those sides? Can we see the perfection and the beauty of the world and at the same time not blind ourselves to seeing the shortcomings, what can still be improved. I think nature is a good pointer to that, Mm. physical nature. The beauty of the physical world in its natural state, I think, is a reminder to us of the presence of beauty, the the presence of goodness in the world that our hearts can connect with and touch. But physical nature alone isn't enough. It's not the end-all and the be-all. It's It's not the core of a spiritual path in Buddhist terms. But it can be a pointer to that kind of perfection. And I'd say in Buddhism, it's more pointing us back to our own hearts. That we take nature as a reminder or a cue or a demonstration of the native goodness of the universe that's also in our own hearts. I'm just going to share one... um, Cartoon with you because, one, because Sylvia turned me on to it, so it's a way of bringing her into the class, but also because it kind of illustrates this concept of trust, you know, sort of seeping into the mainstream. And the cartoon is this there are two policemen in an urban setting, and they've got a guy spread eagled against a car. And uh, they're reading him his Miranda rights. And so the caption is um, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney. Anything you say can and will be used against you. Whether you understand it or not, you are a child of the universe and everything is unfolding just the way it should. (laughs) If I have to be arrested, I'd love to have the cop read me that. Unfolding just the way it
1: should.
0: So, what, what can we... What can we, as practitioners, find that offers that kind of faith? What can we put our trust in? Um, any comments? What, where that kind of ultimate source of trust or faith is for anyone? Yeah.
1: No matter what happens, love will still arise in the human heart.
0: Hmm. Faith in love, uh, surviving in the human heart. Thank you. Rose?
1: for a long time was just the absence of fear. Mm-hmm. Because when I am feeling what Jack calls the body of fear, mm-hmm. it's pretty grim. Mm-hmm. But just having that absence, mm-hmm. I can relax and be okay with mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that other people call faith. Mm-hmm.
0: So faith is the absence of fear, and um, a returning to that knowing, that understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Sam?
1: Um, I remember, actually a number of years ago, sort of really sinking into that mm-hmm. case, mm-hmm. And um, all of a sudden I understood though that the 10,000 solos do not negate the 10,000 joys. Mm. That <laughs> mm-hmm. if, if the 10,000 joys are always here, they're always there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so that's, that's really mm-hmm. been a enormous help to my place.
0: So right not, here, right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So not to lose touch with the joys and beauty of existence, also. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: For me, that's sitting, being present, being with what is right now, not what I'm afraid might be in the future, but allowing and
0: accepting. So faith in being with what is in the moment could say being with the truth of things.
2: And I think for me, there is this experience now, because it takes place over decades, of being able to have access to something Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. that doesn't belong to me, Mm that doesn't have any of myness about it, Mm -hmm. yet I can still have access to it, Mm -hmm. and um, that I can open up to it so that it becomes true. And um, I think, really, I've been really gifted with such pain, such that that avenue, mm-hmm. you know, has slowly become through because mm-hmm. I would I don't know how I or anybody can stay present with such immense amounts of pain and confusion without that eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So using the suffering of life to kind of spur one to discover what can possibly hold it or resolve it and then trusting in what you discover through that. Would you like to say anything about what that is?
2: Well, I can't do too much, but I noticed that in this part of my life one of the things that I'm very drawn to, which I started to do again, is to work in a Zen hospice setting. Mm-hmm. And that what I get to see around me all the time, I don't have to ask for it, I don't, I don't have to do anything. Is like when I came as I Honda and I saw this man smoking outside, he was a person who one leg was cut off short of the knee, and all that. And I allowed myself to really look at him and experience. And what the experience I had was of incredible wholeness. Mm-hmm. You know? And he caught me He caught me actually looking at it. And he really smiled at me and started to engage me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this piece that has nothing to do with me it. manifested itself. And it was contact.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Nice story. Okay, that might be enough uh, of our reflections. Classically, the, um, the teachings of the Buddha are that the practitioner can have faith in the three gems the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. These are traditionally the three sources of refuge, of faith, of trust, of confidence that we can come to, to know for ourselves. So I want to talk just briefly about each of these. The Buddha died 2,500 years ago. He's not here anymore. How are we going to have faith in somebody who is dead? Well, a couple of ways. One is we can understand the Buddha in terms of that awakened state of mind. Once somebody was following him around, one of his monks was very smitten with him and was like a puppy dog just following him everywhere he'd go, you know, the Buddha turned around and the guy would be right there, you know, trying to get his vibes and uh, just in an in, in in adoring, in adoring way just sitting and gazing at the Buddha. And the Buddha said, no, 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 go off and practice, you don't need to hang around me. Go off and practice. Seeing me isn't going to do you a lot of good. The one who sees the Dharma truly sees the Buddha. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. So one who really understands the deepest truth has seen the real nature of the Buddha. So in that way, the Buddha can be alive for each of us today. And the closer we get to this awakened state, we get a sense for ourselves of what the Buddha is, what the Buddha is in our own heart, our own potential for Buddhahood, because we all have that. One of the ways that this is described in um, Another, the Mahayana traditions, not so much the Theravada, but the Mahayana traditions, is in three aspects. Um, They say that essentially our nature, who we truly are, that's what I'm about to describe is who we truly are, beyond change, really. We're not really this body. All spiritual traditions tell us that. It's the mistaking ourselves with this body that is the root of the limited sense of I. This constricted and contracted self-centeredness that causes all the unhappiness. Who we really are, in our essence, is empty space. Someone mentioned spaciousness early as a way of getting into that nature. Our nature is basically this empty space that, secondly, has the quality of awareness. So when you think about that for a minute, when you opened up and were listening to sounds, could you get the sense that your awareness just goes on and on forever? That there are no boundaries to your awareness? As far away as the sounds are, your awareness can go there and, and pick them up. As far away as the, the sun, your awareness can touch. As far away as the stars, our senses can, can have some connection with that. So the sense is that the awareness is, is pervading that space, not as two separate things but as one. So what we really are is this empty space of knowing. And that, uh, those two qualities are said to also include the third quality, which is that it has a quality of being ceaselessly responsive. And that means that out of that empty awareness come all, manifest all the beautiful qualities of heart and mind, qualities um, like wisdom, compassion of listening, understanding, of gratitude, of faith, of insight. All those things come out of that space. So when you think about yourself in terms of the Buddha or what to have trust in, this is what is sometimes called Buddha nature, and it's said to be most deeply what we are. It's unchanging. This is our nature beyond change. different facets will manifest, will radiate at different times, different qualities of this diamond. But this essential nature of um, empty space pervaded with awareness is what we most deeply are. So as we come to trust in that, we um, come to that which is within us, but is not of us, as you were saying. It's something that's in us, but it's not personal not mine or yours, because we all have it. And this also is what lets us feel the true interconnection when we realize that we share this with everything that lives. One of the Chinese Zen masters said, um, all human beings, and in fact all wriggling things,
1: are possessed
0: of this great nirvanic nature, so it's a nature like nirvana. It's un- unchanging in that way. So the dharma are the teachings of the Buddha or the truth, the uh, instructions that point us to this discovery. And then in the ultimate sense, dharma is used for this nature that we discover also. So we have faith in the teachings. And often that's our first source of faith. It was mine. I was 16 years old. I was living in Webster Groves, Missouri, in the Dark Ages, let me tell you.
1: This
0: is in about... What was it? 1964, I think. And I wandered into a bookstore that I frequented from time to time. I had a kind of uh, reflective state of mind back then. And I saw this book on the shelf called The Way of Zen by Alan Watts. <laughs> and there was this Buddha image on the cover. And I don't know why, but I bought it. I didn't read it right away. I, waited a cu- I kept it on my shelf. And a couple of years later, I picked it up and I started reading it. And that was my first... Connection to anything really spiritual. I've been brought up a, a Protestant, uh, which is about as remote from real spirituality as I know of. And, sorry, <laughs> that's just that was my Midwestern experience. I don't mean to be blanket with that, but um, <laughs> okay, all right, thank you. I want to make sure that's understood personally because there are a lot of beautiful Christians from the Protestant denominations in the world, also. <laughs> that was my experience. So, this really kind of a- awakened me to another way of looking and the possibility of freedom. You know, freedom from all suffering. You mean my teenage neuroses could be liberated from my teenage neuroses? That was pretty attractive to me. So it could be a book, um, could be a, a Dharma talk, somebody. And then the, uh, the other avenue for lots of us is the Sangha. We run into somebody who embodies some of these qualities, these you know, beautiful qualities of the heart or mind, and we're just struck that such a human being is possible. Yeah. The first retreat I went to was led, um, one of the teachers was Joseph Goldstein. And I just, you know, I like Joseph from the very beginning. He's so light. I'd never met anybody who carried himself and viewed his life with such a feeling of lightness. His mind just didn't seem to get hooked or caught anywhere. And he always kind of had this happiness about him. So I spent a lot of time with Joseph over many years. That was 1976, and this is 26 years later. Come to know him as a, as a teacher. I've spent a lot of time just learning from him. Come to know him as a colleague. We work together on a three-month course and other places, and as a friend, and we hang out and do stuff together. And over the years, seeing Joseph in all those different modes, um, I'm more impressed than I was at the beginning. That he really does have uh, that kind of freedom in almost every area of his life. Yeah, there are still a couple of places where he can get hooked and caught up, but not many. <laughs> Not many. I tell you, he's, he's pretty amazing. So when we see somebody that inspires us like that, who manifests these qualities, and we see that it's a possibility, this is the beginning of what's called in the tradition, bright faith. Bright faith. And there's kind of a wow quality to it. It lights us up. You know, We get a hit off that person, off that possibility, and our, our eyes kind of get bright, thinking, I mean, that's really possible for human beings? Somebody like the Dalai Lama is great at um, evoking that quality of bright faith in people. You really see the human potential. The Buddha talked a lot about how important this is uh, to be around people who inspire us. Ananda was his cousin and attendant for 25 years, the last 25 years of his life. Ananda was a very beautiful, giving, kind and generous person, but um, the Buddha always uh, had to correct Ananda's understanding. Half the comments are the Buddha correcting Ananda's understanding. So in this case, Ananda comes up and says to the Buddha, you know, venerable one, I've been thinking. I think that spiritual friendship, that is, association with wise people, is a full half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, say not so, Ananda, as he always did. Association with spiritual friends is the whole of the holy life the whole of the holy life. And he went on to say why. It's not just because it's cool to hang out with people who are mellow. (laughs) It is cool to hang out with people who are mellow, but that's not really what it's about in its essence. The Buddha went on to say, for when one associates with spiritual friends, one can be expected to develop and pursue the noble Eightfold Path. Good spiritual friends accept us as we are, but also challenge us to grow. They motivate us, they encourage us, they challenge us to develop those highest qualities within ourselves. And associating with those people, we sort of can't escape that encouragement and that stimulation and that spur. So it's not just because it's groovy to hang out with them, but also because they foster our own development. And a good spiritual friend will actually push our development in that way. So we see that faith in uh, this context has another implication for us as practitioners, for us as Buddhists, and that is that it ought to lead to effort. Faith is a beautiful quality in itself. It opens us up in that way of trusting, that absence of fear um, that was mentioned. But it needs to go further. It needs to say, look, you've seen what's possible. You've seen these qualities manifest in someone else. You can develop those in yourself. What's holding you back? So the faith needs to spur us to make the next step, um, which is effort or energy. And as we begin to make that effort, then we check out the teachings. We check out the qualities of the path. And then when we find out that they can develop, we move to the next level of faith, which is called verified faith. So the movement is bright faith, effort, and then verified faith. We check it out from our own experience. And that's kind of how I think of this path. It's, to me it's like the science of the mind. Science is about universal laws that can be repeated in the proper laboratory conditions. We create the proper laboratory conditions when we sit down and look at our own minds and bodies And out of that, we can repeat the same results that the Buddha found. Attention brings calm. Calm brings concentration. When the mind is steady, we can understand. Life is change. If you hang on, you suffer. So we can repeat those experiments and and verify it. Then it's the level of verified faith. I want to talk a little about this quality of, um, of opening that a couple of people touched on and uh, look, at, look at what's involved in that. When you, um, when you come to that place of stillness and presence in your meditation practice, have you ever gotten nervous? How many people have felt some nervousness in that place of stillness? Yeah. It was not at all uncommon. Um, when we get in that place of stillness, we've dropped our defenses. We're not carrying on our life history, our personal story. We're not bringing in our partner or our mother or our savings accounts. We've just dropped everything and it's just our attention meeting the bare facts of life. It's our attention just meeting life. So we are uh, exposed, we're bare, we're open, and in that there's there's a real vulnerability. And I think that's one of the challenges of the meditation practice. Are we willing to drop the past and the future and all the security that that represents? Drop the personality? and just touch the moment directly. Unmediated, raw life, boom. It takes courage. It takes that absence of fear to be able to do that. When we do, as we get more and more familiar with it, we realize it's not so scary. It's actually okay to be vulnerable. But vulnerability feels really awkward at first. It feels we're too exposed. This is from um, Chogyam Trungpa, a Tibetan teacher. It's a little long, but I I like it and I hope you'll uh, stay with me. It is as if we had a pimple on our body that was very sore, so sore that we do not want to rub it or scratch it. During our shower, we do not want to rub too much soap over it because it hurts. That sore spot on our body represents compassion. Why? Because even in the midst of aggression, insensitivity, or laziness in our life, we always have a soft spot, some point we can cultivate. A more vivid analogy might be of an opened wound, which is always there. That opened wound is usually very inconvenient and problematic. We would like to be tough, we would like to come on strong, but there will always be a sore spot. At least we are accessible somewhere. So we are not completely covered with a suit of armor all the time, such a relief. So this vulnerability is actually the place that our heart is open and can be touched. And when the heart is open and can be touched, that's the doorway to develop all the heart qualities. In our tradition, we typically call these the Brahmaviharas: Viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity that area of vulnerability is the opening for those heart qualities to come out. The world can touch us, and we can touch the world. It's that sensitive heart that we're starting to to tap into. And Trungpa continues, There's also an inner wound, or Buddha nature. This is like a heart that has been sliced and bruised with wisdom and compassion. When the inner wound and the outer wound begin to meet and to communicate, Then we begin to realize that our whole being is made out of one complete sore spot altogether. (laughs) This is called bodhisattva fever. (laughs) That vulnerability is compassion. We really have no way to defend ourselves anymore. So this quality of faith is really the avenue to touching that vulnerability, and that vulnerability is the opening into these heart qualities loving kindness, compassion, and then the extending of that to the world. I also wanted to read a little bit from a Zen text called Verses on the Faith Mind. This is in, for those of you who have it, this is in Jack Kornfield's uh, book, Teachings of the Buddha. It's a lovely little reference book. Um, if you were going to get one book that has a few of the teachings of the Buddha, this is a good um, sample. And This was a Zen, uh, a Zen teacher, a Zen master, early on in the history in China. He's known classically as the Third Zen Patriarch, but because that's a little bit patriarchal, um, the Third Zen Lineage Holder might be better. And This is called Verses on the Faith Mind, it's really a lovely text. And uh, toward the end of it uh, is this passage. For the unified mind, in accord with the way, all self-centered striving ceases. Doubts and irresolution vanish, and life in true faith is possible. To live with this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality, for the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. Doubts and irresolution vanish in life in true faith is possible. To live with this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. So we come back to this deep sense of trust in the basic goodness of life, of ourselves, and that gives us the ability to accommodate without so much anxiety, all the things in the wrong, that all the things in the world that aren't right, that aren't perfect, we can open to them because of this really deep-seated trust that's more basic. Okay, we only got to one today, but um, we talk more about the others most of the time, mindfulness and concentration and wisdom and energy. So I wanted to talk about faith because it's one that we don't tend to um, verbalize a lot. So I wanted to touch on it today.